Let me invite you to open your Bibles, please, to the book of Philippians chapter 1. Let's join together in prayer. Father, we, we commit ourselves to you. We commit ourselves to you for forevermore, but we think particularly about this next hour or so that we have the privilege of opening your word. We pray that you would help us, help us to yield ourselves fully to your spirit and to be engaged to understand what your word says so that we might fulfill the divinely given mission to hold forth, to embrace, to display, and to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Minister in us, make us willing, and use us in Jesus' name. Amen. So, of course, we have to start with a football illustration. The best quarterbacks do great when the defensive linemen are not crawling on them. The best quarterbacks, the best, do poorly when defensive linemen are crawling on them. One of the ways that certain teams have figured out to impact Tom Brady is to only rush four defensive linemen and to use everyone else in coverage to make sure that those that are going out in pass routes are covered and to find a way to seal the edge. So you have four defensive linemen, the two outside are called defensive ends. What they do is they come up the field and they seal the pocket. The pocket is the area that the quarterback has to move around in to make his throw. So the, the defensive ends come up the field and seal him in and the defensive tackles, the two that are right in front of him, push the pocket in so that he has nowhere to move. He can't move to the left or the right because there's people on each side and the pressure is coming up at them. They can't even step into their throw. Unfortunately, the Patriots found that strategy uh, quite effective against them in a couple of Super Bowls against the New York Giants. They've also found that strategy effective against teams like the Baltimore Ravens and the, even the lowly New York oh, Jets. Um, what's, what's the issue? Pressure. Pressure. If there's no pressure, a good quarterback sees his target and can hit them virtually every time. But put the pressure on and see what happens. Start hitting him time and time again. What you'll notice as you watch a good quarterback or a poor quarterback be hit Time after time, you start looking at their eyes, and they look like they are just deer in the headlights. The pressure has gotten to them. They don't want to be hit anymore. They can't find any room to maneuver, so they start to do trick things to try to, to move the pocket around. But you can see it. You can see the light in their eyes just dims, and they have the, the confidence that they once had starts to diminish. You know, the church... The church is under pressure. The world around us does not and will not tolerate the message we proclaim. And primarily that's because 
It is so exclusive. Because the gospel speaks of Jesus being the one and the only way, the world bristles. The Bible says that there is no other way to the Father except through Jesus Christ, who has himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. The Bible says that there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. This is exclusive. The Lord Jesus warned. He said, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy. That leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are what does it say? Many. Many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Few. The world replies, that was written by men. Or, the Bible is filled with errors. Or, the Bible is filled with contradictions. Or, the Bible is no longer relevant. This is the claim of the world. The world argues against the gospel. The world dismisses the gospel with many arguments. The church, then, has to figure out how to deal with this type of rejection. Did you hear that? The church has to figure out how to deal with this type of rejection. The mounting pressure has caused many churches to cater to the philosophy of society. The exclusivity of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, in so many churches has been displaced. Churches start there at this point, maybe with the thought that no one will hear our message if we don't adjust to the times. But God has warned his people not to look out at the world, but to look up to him. And the only place we hear the words of him to whom we look is as we look in to the Bible, the only book that God has authored. And here we are in God's word again. Philippians chapter 1, please, verse 27 and following. The Bible says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict 
that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. He begins verse 27 by saying, Only let your manner of life, your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ or of Christ. The word manner of life comes from a Greek word that contains the word for city. Polis is the word uh, for city. And the, the Greek term is uh, polituomai. Uh, and, and you can actually hear the English word politics there. Can you not? Polituomai. So you hear the word for city in the Greek and you hear the word for politics in English. What, what we're seeing here in this concept in verse 27 that it has the idea of a way of life of a particular society or culture. Only let your way of life, the way that you live in a certain society, be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, Richard Mellick made this statement. It'll be on the screens to my left and right. He wrote, no doubt the readers would have associated the word with the Roman citizenship, which they prized so much. This was Paul's way of reminding them of the obligations of people who participate in a society. In this case, the society was of Christians, listen carefully, whose strongest ties were in heaven. He's told us to live our lives as residents of heaven. To live our lives as proponents of the gospel. To live our lives recognizing that the gospel is not an addition to our life, but is, in fact, our life in its essence. Live our lives worthy of the gospel. To say it in a slightly different way, our new culture, our new culture is formed by the gospel. Or, giving you some variety of thinking, the gospel is the foundation of our new way of life. The gospel is the foundation of our new way of life. What we really need to do is to live out a gospel culture. We live in a culture. There are certain norms that we participate in at various times throughout the year. Uh, we celebrate Fourth of July and Independence Day. We celebrate Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's. We, we celebrate Easter and all these things. That the culture celebrates it in a certain way. And, and in some ways we participate. But a gospel culture takes those things and, and, and doesn't participate the same way. A gospel culture is one that exalts God and his way and rebuffs man's ways that stand in contrast to God's ways. A gospel culture is based upon repentance of our sin, of our way, and of our false doctrine. A gospel culture is based upon a God who intervenes into world history to save us from ourselves and from our sin. A gospel culture realizes that the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ was to pay for our sin debt and to seek, our gospel culture seeks to demonstrate that faithful 
manner of life. A gospel culture is not our world culture, folks. Not American culture. Not 21st century culture. A gospel culture today is the same as the gospel culture in the first century. A normal response to someone throwing a punch our way is what? To throw one back, except harder, and maybe more of them. That's a normal response. That's the culture that we come from. If someone strikes you, strike them back, but do it better. Here's what Jesus said. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. That, that is not our world culture, folks. And if we're honest, I think that we struggle mightily to fulfill the demands of that text. Don't we? Oh, you forgot. I, you only took 10 of my dollars. Here's another 20. I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think that's the main idea. It's counterculture. It's opposite of the world we live in. That's what God is striking at there to teach us that is not your life. Your life does not consist in the abundance of the things that you possess. The things don't matter. The soul of man that lasts forever, that matters. And so we have our passage this morning. In our passage this morning, we want to recognize five truths about gospel culture. Some of them will be very quick. Some of them we'll spend some time on. And I'm not in a hurry. I hope you're not either. Good, thank you. Any, any other takers on that not in a hurry? Sweet. I've got a unanimous decision because no one, no one dissented. So we'll be here for a little while discussing this text without being harried. First of all, Gospel culture does not need the presence of a spiritual guru. I like that wording. <laughs> Gospel culture does not need the presence of a spiritual guru. Listen to what he says in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent... I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened at anything by your opponents. The idea that we're coming at here is whether I'm there or not. Whether I'm there or not. Now, let's not go you know, harp all over this in a, in a negative way or, or an inappropriate way. We want to have balance anytime we look at God's word. This is not saying we don't need one another. This does not say we don't need spiritual leaders. To say either of those things would be in contradiction to other passages of Scripture. So that is not what we're getting at here. Gospel culture, is, this is what it is saying, gospel culture does not revolve around the pastor 
the elder, the evangelist, or some personality in the church. Gospel culture is all about the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what gospel culture is about. So long as the one behind the pulpit keeps pointing you to him, you should be happy. So long as the one behind the pulpit keeps pointing you to Christ in the scriptures, you should be happy to follow. As soon as the emphasis turns away from Christ to something or someone else, you should say, hey, you know, uh, we, we have a, a little problem here. I, I'm not really sure what you're getting at because I know that what the scriptures are doing are pointing us to Jesus, and you seem to be pointing us somewhere else. If I ever do that, you ought to come, and you ought to lovingly, kindly confront me with that. Because the Bible is not about me. And the Bible, it's not about you. The Bible is a message from God about God showing us how God redeems a person like me and it reveals to me the, the need for redemption because every time I see a, a character in Scripture, I see their sinfulness and I say, Ooh! I do that. I do that. That's me. I'm just as wicked and rotten as that person. And then I see Christ and I say, wow, I can't do that. And I don't do that. I need him. That's what the, the Bible does. It points us to Christ by showing us how desperate we are and how perfect God's solution in Christ is. If gospel culture were about some individual outside of Christ, listen carefully, if it were about some person outside of Christ, we could live one way when that important person is around. And we could live differently when they are not. But gospel culture isn't about a person. So you can act one way around me and differently around me when you're not around me. And what difference does that make? It just shows the hypocrisy, right? Instead, Paul is convinced that the gospel should so impact our lives that whether or not anyone is looking, we should live out the fruitfulness of the gospel and the fruit of the Spirit should be evidenced in our lives, whether you're in the presence of others or not. So wherever we are, Wherever we go, no matter what, listen carefully, God is present. This is true, and it's true not just because God is omnipresent. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you've come to the saving knowledge of Christ, God dwells in you. So gospel culture is not dependent upon a spiritual guru. You have the very spirit of the living God dwelling in you. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, whether I'm there or not, because you know God is present, not only in his omnipresence, but in his spirit dwelling in you. Secondly, gospel culture requires, requires 
requires active participation. Gospel culture requires active participation. Look again at verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, listen carefully, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. That is the text of this this point, gospel culture requires active participation. This relates to all believers. The whole church is to be involved in this. Real Christianity is not in addition to our lives. It's not like, okay, we've got this, this structure, we have this house, it's been built, and now we come to Christ and we're going to add an addition on the end. We're not doing that. Real Christianity is the sum and substance, the true essence of our lives. True Christianity impacts every corner of our lives. Therefore, gospel culture requires active participation. So Paul uses some word pictures here. First of all, he uses a military term. He says it in the middle of verse 27, that I may hear of you that you are standing firm, that you are standing firm. The idea is to stand watch or to stand on guard. Now, when I was thinking about this, an image came into my mind and I had to do a little bit of research on it. I think you'll find it to be interesting if you know about it. It will rekindle your appreciation. If you're not, hopefully it will kindle your appreciation. Have you heard of the tomb of the unknown soldier in Arlington National Cemetery? Since July 2nd, 1937. You hear that? That's longer than many of us have been alive. Since July 2nd, 1937, there has been a guard standing watch 24 hours a day, seven days a week, regardless of weather, regardless of war, regardless of anything. Always a soldier on guard. There are some very interesting things that takes place as this soldier does his hour or so, hour or half hour, depending on what time of year it is, shift. There are a series of movements, and each movement is comprised of a 21-second or 21-part movement. And that 21 second or 21 movement uh, part is, is, is basically a symbolic gesture of a 21 gun salute. So if you think about from, from July 2nd, 1937, the unknown soldier has been receiving continuous, perpetual 21-gun salutes in honor of all of those who have given their lives to keep us free. Man, some, some traditions, some traditions I think are worthy. There's one of them. And yet, there can be a tendency to vacillate 
our stand when it comes to the life-giving, life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ. Where's the 24-7 watch, folks? Where's the continuous 21-gun salute for the gospel that saved us, has given us hope and confidence about eternity with God? Paul calls us to stand. Church, we are to stand watch over the gospel. That is our call because there are adversaries. The world, the flesh, and the devil do not want us to stand for the gospel. And Paul says, I want you to know this. Everything about you, everything about your life, everything about the way you live, everything about the way you think, everything about the way you speak, let it be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't need to be there. No one needs to be there. God is there. God is present in you and above you. God knows. And your job, your job is to stand firm for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We will not cater to a world that doesn't want to hear the gospel. We cannot change the message. It's the only message that gives hope and salvation. Stand firm over the gospel of Jesus Christ. He mixes his metaphor now in the next portion. And he says, with one mind striving. Paul's my kind of guy. He's using an athletic illustration. Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Striving is a term from athletics. It has the idea of contending or sweating. A few nights back, I was watching the Boston Celtics, and they were getting pounded, pounded by the Houston Rockets. It was, it was a bloodbath as far as a basketball event is concerned. 26 points. Well, the Boston Celtics kept grinding, and they ratcheted up their defensive intensity, and they began to get every loose ball, and they began to get offensive rebounds, and slowly but surely they were chipping away at this 26-point ridiculous lead. Their first lead came with seconds remaining in the game. And they won the game 99 to 98. Well, big deal. It's just an athletic event. If they stopped contending, they would not, they would not have made it. it. You know, it's athletics. Who cares? It's a game lost, game won. Big deal. Listen, folks, it's all about that constancy. It's so easy to lose our perspective. It's so easy to, to move on to other things of, of importance to us. If we move away from the most important thing, we stop striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, well, well we're going to let it go. Now, God's not going to let it go. God's more than capable of dealing with this without us. You'll remember as Jesus was coming in and the, the disciples were crying out, Hosanna, and the, the, the Pharisees said, 
rebuke these people for, for, for speaking out like this. And he said, ah, if these don't cry out, the stones themselves will cry out. God has no problem, okay? God's going to get his, his job done. He always does because he's God. But, but didn't he call us? Didn't he call us? And in that call, out of darkness, into his, the kingdom of his beloved son, he's called us to stand firm, to stand watch over the gospel, and to, to strive for it, to, to press with it. Not to offend people, not to hurt people unnecessarily, not, not to, to thwart people, but to rescue them, to offer them life, life, true life, life that lasts forever, life with God through the gospel. We have been called to keep embracing, living out, and proclaiming the gospel. This is, is an active participation. That means you. Not your mommy and your daddy. Not your sister or your brother. You. You. Active participation in standing watch and contending for the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is our charge from God. He moves on. He's still saying, I want to hear this about you. This, this is what I want to hear, whether I'm there or not. I want to hear this. Standing firm, striving side by side. Listen carefully. Verse 28. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. We're going to come back to this in a few moments uh, because it, it really is an important point that we want to embody and understand. But notice this about our active participation. We are to be standing, not sitting. Not on the sidelines, in the game. We're to be striving, not slouching. Back in my high school days when I was playing basketball, every now and then, you know, you, you've been running up and down the court and then you're standing at the, the free throw line and you're, you're going to be standing there for a rebound and, and you, you kind of grab your shorts, kind of grab your shorts and, and, and lean over a little bit, you're trying to catch your breath a little bit, kind of recuperate. My coach used to say, hands off your shorts, hands off your shorts, not grabbing our shorts, not slouching, we're in this, we're contending. He says, striving, not slouching. And then we notice this active part, confident, not frightened. Are you participating in this? Have you taken your foot off the gas pedal? There's a third element he wants for us to consider, at least you can see in the text anyway. Gospel culture is maintained in unity. Gospel culture is maintained in unity. Notice, it, in the middle of verse 27, you are standing firm in one spirit, and then he immediately follows it with, with one mind, striving side by side. So he's got this idea of unity right in the midst of this discussion. Gospel culture is maintained in unity. We do this not individually, we do this collectively. We do this together. There is no question what God is trying to convey here. This is not golf, folks. 
Golf is an individual sport. The call for us is to do this together. What keeps us unified? What keeps us unified? Well, I, I will tell you this, it is not taking the Myers-Briggs type indicator. That's, that's what businesses do. Businesses have some disunity in the ranks and they want to make sure that their people understand one another so they have a guru come in, I'm actually certified to do this, come in and, and, and run the Myers-Briggs indicator test. And, okay, so everyone takes this long thing, then they start to explain, okay, well this means this and this means this, so you can understand your, your compadre by doing this, you understand that this is how they think, this is their pr preference, etc., etc., etc. Fine, if the world wants to do that to, to maintain unity, I have no problem with it. There are some insightful things you can learn from it, but that's not what we're going to do to figure out unity. Does this text give us any keys to figure out how we can have a unified spirit in this gospel culture? It's, it's big and fat right in the middle of it. I think this is on the screen. Ready? Four the faith of the gospel. For the faith of the gospel. This is what maintains the unity. It's not you and I changing our preferences and, and dressing alike and acting alike and smelling alike and shaving alike. That's not it. That's not unity. That is, that's external stuff. What he's talking about is a true unity that our lives are based upon and lived out for the faith of the gospel. The good news about Jesus Christ is our rallying cry. It is an assurance of victory. You know that? Raise your hand if you ever felt like a loser. Seriously, raise your hand. You felt like a loser in the past? Raise your hand. Uh, let me tell you something. We've all felt like a loser at one time or another, but I can tell you, if you know Christ as your Savior, you are on the winning side. Victory is assured. This is why we can rally around the gospel. It is our rallying cry. It's an assurance of victory. So we're unified, not even so much as for one another's sake, though we do care about one another. We're unified because of that rally cry. The gospel always assures final victory because God is in control. Fourth element of this that we want to consider, gospel culture is not readily embraced by the world's culture. Gospel culture is not readily embraced by the world's culture. And so we're going to have a little, we have a little job to do now. I'm going to read this text. Try to get, gather a little bit from it. Then we're going to run around the scriptures, New Testament, for a few minutes, looking at a number of passages. Because there are, there are so many people that think that we can win the world with our winsomeness. If I'm just nicer about how I present the gospel, if I'm just a little kinder about it, if we're more actively involved in social causes and political causes, the world will see how valuable we are. They'll know that they need us. And they will come running to us. They will love us. We'll be a city on a hill. And, and we won't be ashamed and everyone will be happy. 
Sounds nice, doesn't it? I like, I'd like to live in that world. Wouldn't you? Well, that one's coming. That one's coming. God has something else to say to us about it, though. God pulls no punches. He tells us, people are not going to like what you stand for, how you live, and what you say. They're not going to like it. Listen to what he says, again in verse 28, not frightened in anything by your what? Oh, wait a second. I thought Christians made people happy and, and, and everyone was at peace with them. Negative, son. People oppose the gospel because the gospel is the only message God has given to save people and Satan hates it. So Satan hates you. Satan hates your neighbor. Satan hates, and that's the end of the sentence. Satan hates. Not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction. We're going to come back to that, but of your salvation and that from God. Listen carefully. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, so God grants that belief, grants that faith, grants that salvation, not only believe in him, but also, God grants this, also for you to suffer for his sake. Well, thank you. Verse 30, engaged, he wants us, he, he calls us to be engaged in the same what? What word? Conflict that you saw I had, past tense, and now hear that I still have. Paul has not become more winsome. Paul hasn't defeated all of his enemies by making them friends. Paul keeps preaching the gospel and people keep opposing him. Happened before, and it's still happening, he says. It's going to happen to you. Well, of course, there's got to be better news than this. Well, let's look around the scriptures for a couple of moments. 2 Corinthians 4. Gospel culture is not readily embraced by the world's culture. You remember he said in two different ways that this was all for his sake. For his sake. That's what we're here for. We're here for his sake. As those that are worshiping, as those that are studying God's word, as those that are proclaiming the gospel, those that suffer. It is all for his sake, all for the glory of God. Not for the glory of men, not for the glory of this age, not for the glory of the church, not for the glory of the pastor, all for the glory of God. That's what we're here for, folks. That's why God has created us, sustained us, and graciously saved us. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7, please. But we have this treasure, speaking of the gospel. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Things that break and, and that are soiled, that can be damaged. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested right now in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake 
so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. In other words, that God can be seen in our lives right now. Rather than them seeing Rob, they see Christ. That's what happens when we die to ourselves and are allowing the Spirit to control us. They, they don't see me and my many, many frailties, my many weaknesses, my, my horrible sinfulness. They don't see me, they see Christ dying to self, alive to God. Verse 12, so death our death is at work in us, but life in you. So he's telling us that, that this process of pressure, the pressure that's coming from the outside, is to bring out something glorious. The pressure from the outside is putting my fleshliness to death and bringing forth the glorious spirit in my life so that Christ can be seen. Look at Colossians 1 and verse 24. You won't see this statement every day unless you're reading God's word. Verse 24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Did you hear that? Most people beef about their sufferings. Beef, that's my, my dad's word. My dad's word growing up. Stop your beefing, quit your beefing. Most people complain about suffering. Here Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. He's not saying that anything is lacking in Christ. What he's, what he's getting at is there's a continuance of the suffering of Christ as his body suffers in his stead. Verse 25, of which the church, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. So Paul says, I'm suffering because this is the pathway of following Christ. That suffering results because I'm making the word of God fully known. I am standing fast for the gospel. I am contending for the gospel. I am striving for the gospel, and I am not at all afraid in anything of my opponents, because what I'm doing this for is for Christ. I have opponents. People oppose the gospel, but I stand firm. Look further, please. 1 Peter chapter 4. So we've heard from Paul. First Peter chapter 4, let's hear from Peter. For some reason, they seem to say the same thing. Oh, ha, I know why they say the same thing. Because while they're different human beings, men, the same God inspired what they wrote. So their messages will agree. Right? That's why we interpret Scripture with Scripture, because God's Word comes from Him. Though there are 40 penmen of Scripture, there is one author of Scripture, God Himself. And so Peter agrees. He says in 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 8, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. And I have turned you to the wrong passage. Chapter 3. Sorry. It was a great passage. You should love one another. And I should love you. And you should love me. It's good. But that wasn't the passage. Verse, chapter 3 and verse 8. 
I'm going to blame it on my wife. She did it. I don't know why or how, but she messed my notes up. Either that or it was the Vicodin. I don't know. Sorry. Strike that from the record. 1 Peter 3, beginning in verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. For this you are called. Called to what? What do you mean? Called to what? To be reviled and to not revile in return. To be cursed and yet to bless. This is gospel culture. This is not our culture. This is not church culture. This is gospel culture that must be the church's culture. Paul tells us that we're going to suffer for holding to the truth. Peter tells us that we're going to suffer for holding to the truth. I wonder what James has to say. What do you think? Let's see. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 2, actually just verse 2 and verse 12. James writes, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So he's not necessarily saying it's persecution, but it's trials of various kinds. And one of those elements would be persecution. Verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So, so James tells us we're going to suffer tribulation, difficulties in this life. All right, so Peter says it, Paul says it, James says it. I wonder what Jesus has to say. Same thing. Same author. Ready? John chapter 15. I think people forget to read this. And I'm, I'm not kidding. And I'm not trying to be abrasive or rude. But too many people, churches-wise, are trying to win people with their personality. This is what God says the world thinks about us. In John 15, verses 18 and 19, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world, what does it say? Hates you. They don't maybe think of it that way. But they hate what we stand for. They, they, hate, they hate you telling them that there is only one way. And that the way that maybe they've chosen is not the right way. Whether that be gender issues, sexuality issues, regular life issues, or having to do with the eternal life issues. They don't like what we have to say because we speak as those with authority. Why do we speak as those with authority? Because we have. We have authority. I don't, I don't speak authoritatively because I'm really smart. I don't speak authoritatively because I'm the wisest guy that ever lived or 
or the most experienced guy that ever lived. I don't speak authoritatively about myself. Man, if I start thinking about myself, I start to like cry. I, I, I kind of stink. I don't like it. And I'm not kidding. It bothers me something fierce. I hate it. Not speaking authoritatively from myself. Ain't nothing there. Here? Right here? Right here? God's word? There's nothing. There's nothing that holds a candle to it. This is the only source of authority we have about eternal life. Not some lady that had some dream somewhere and wrote a book about it, said God was calling and Jesus is calling and talking about it. No, no, no. Not, not Ellen White or whatever her name is, having some dream from God and writing in a book. Not Joseph Smith having, having this encounter and having some new revelation. I'm talking about what God has authenticated as actual, inspired truth. This is authoritative. I can speak with authority. And you know what? The world hates it. They don't like it. Chapter 16, John, John 16, verse 33. Jesus said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In me you have, may have peace. <laughs> well, I've more to the story here. In the world, you will have tribulation. In me you'll have peace. In the world, tribulation. Peace here. Tribulation there. He didn't stop, though. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Amen. Isn't that good news? Amen. Head back to Philippians chapter 1. Please listen, even while you're turning. Why would I think I can rightly represent God and the gospel and still find favor with the world. Why would I think that? God makes it abundantly clear. When you stand for him in the gospel, people aren't going to like it. But I think I can love them in. Okay. You've got your way. Let's go with what God actually says. Now, do we want to love them? Yes. Do we want to be kind to them? Yes. Do we want to meet their needs? Yes. Yes and yes. But that's not salvation. Salvation comes from hearing the word preached, communicated, reading the word. God saves people through the gospel message. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel runs counter to the thinking of the world. Now, we're back in Philippians chapter 1. I want us to notice the wording back in verse 29, he says, for it has been granted to you. It has been granted to you. That's, that's called a gracious endowment. That's God giving you something. It has been granted to you. He gives us two things in verse 29. He doesn't give us one thing in verse 29. He gives us two things in verse 29. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him. There's the first grace gift but also to suffer for his sake. There's the second grace gift. Just as our salvation from sin is completely a work of God's gracious action, so our suffering on his behalf is a gracious allotment. You'll remember 
the apostles. They were brought before the council in Acts chapter 5. They were, they, were, they were questioned. They gave their defense. They were beaten. They were beaten and released. You remember these words? Then they left the presence of the council. Will you read it with me? Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Dishonor for the name. What name, folks? The name of Jesus. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. This is good. It is a privilege. It is a privilege to stand for, to contend for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Finally, our last point, gospel culture demonstrates confidence about life after death. Gospel culture demonstrates confidence about life after death. Look at verse 28 again. He says, And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This courage, this lack of fright, is a clear, a clear sign to them. A clear sign to them of their destruction. But of your salvation in that from God. The confidence of the church is a clear sign to them of what? That, that something's wrong. Now, they try to wash it away. They try to bury guilt. They try to bury it in different ways. Some people bury their guilt by, by being very giving of time and resources, right? Some people try to bury their guilt by buying lots of things so that they there's always some reason to be happy. I need another thing. Give me this thing and I'll be happy. I'll, I'll wash away my irritations and my guilt. Some people wash it away with drugs and alcohol. Some people wash it away with, with overeating and gluttony. Some people do it with, with parties. Some people do it with sex. There are all manners of ways in, in which people try to cover up their guilt. The reason they're covering is because in the back of their mind, they know, I am not, I am not good enough for what's coming. I am not good enough for what's coming. And the confidence of the church not to cater to our culture, to change the message, to, to massage things, to make it easy, so that when someone comes in, they feel as though, well, I, I've been to a concert before, I can go to that church church. And everything's fine. I, I, can, I can go and, and I won't feel uncomfortable. Now, I don't want people to come here and be uncomfortable. We have nice chairs and we, have, we, we air condition and heat the place. We're nice, right? Are we nice people? We, we, we greet them with a smile. We welcome them. We, we want to love on them. We, we, we dress however we dress. We don't really care. You know, I, I, I dress a little, a little up and some people don't. I don't really care what you dress like. It's not really a big deal. We come together, we, we sing, and, and it's, it's a nice environment, right? There's, there's, nothing, there's nothing bad going on here. But I don't want people to like have gone to something like they've experienced before. You? Oh, I went to the Elks Club once, it was fun. Went to that church, it was fun. I went to a concert before, it was fun. Went to that church, it was fun. Ah, I think I'm looking for something different than that. I have fun. I don't know about you. I have fun here. I enjoy it. Okay, But the goal is not comfort. 
if an unbeliever who doesn't know Jesus and is, is, is enshrouded in darkness and sin can come in here and say, boy, that was just, that was just wonderful, without being confronted with their sin and, and thinking, My, that sin is a problem. That God is something else. He, he's dealing with sin. Jesus paid for my sin? Like, that should make someone either really excited because they're going to cry out and repent of their sin and turn to Christ, and, and it gives great joy and rejoicing, or they're going to leave pretty stinking upset. Not like, hey, that was, that was kind of interesting. That was kind of fun. That's not what we're looking for, folks. When people reject the truth, the truth is still at work. It convinces them not only of their own destruction, but of our salvation. Of our salvation. They, they don't have this, this thing hanging over their head. It's, it's not ready to squash them at any moment. They, they seem to have peace and joy in the midst of the same circumstances I'm dealing with. That's a clear sign to them of your salvation. That's what gospel culture produces. The church is under attack in the world. This doesn't surprise us because it did not surprise God. He warned us that there would be opposition to the message and the messengers of the gospel. The world and Satan would have us back off. Our flesh would prefer to be accepted by those around us. But God has told us to bear witness of the gospel and to know that it will have an impact. It will have an impact. That impact will speak of a coming judgment. Some will try to ignore this. And it will speak of the certainty of our salvation. What will it all produce? To some, they will embrace the gospel in this life. They'll receive that life from above. They'll be saved. To others, they'll hunker down and they'll reject, they'll reject the gospel, which will lead to their everlasting judgment. You see, the, the proclamation of the gospel, you'll remember from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, is a fragrance of life. It's a fragrance of life to those who believe. We love it. We love to hear the gospel. But it's a fragrance of death to those who reject it. They don't want to hear the gospel. It condemns them in their sin. It's uncomfortable. But the proclamation of the gospel had an effect, right? Rejoicing from some, despising from others. Paul tells us that the world is not going to like it, that there will be opponents. We've got to know it. And we can't cater to the pressure. The pressure to change the message is foolhardy. Because the message came from God. And the message is this. I'm a sinner. And you're a sinner. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The message is this. 
there's a, a consequence to that sin. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6, 23. There's a solution to that sin. There's a solution to that coming judgment. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The solution God has offered is himself who left the glories and joys of heaven to become a baby, to perfectly fulfill the law of God, to be rejected indeed by men, and to become sin for us, even though he knew no sin, so that all those who trust Christ will become, become the righteousness of God through faith, faith in Christ. So the message is this. I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. God has offered to me eternal salvation by faith alone, or by grace alone, sorry, by grace alone, through faith alone, that means embracing what God has offered in Christ alone. That's the gospel. That Jesus' death was sufficient to bear my sin, to pay for all of them, and he's willing to grant me eternal life forever if I cry out to him for that life. This is the message. We preach it week in and week out from the pulpit, and we need as an assembly to preach it in our homes, in our workplace, and in the marketplace. People need to hear the gospel. Paul has called us because God has called us. And I call us to follow this truth. Let's pray. Father, give us. Give us strength. Give us stamina. Give us passion. Give us confidence that we might herald the good news about Jesus Christ from now until you bring us home to be with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.